Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 318, Debate with Rogers. Does Mark teach that Jesus is God? Part 2. In this episode, I present my edit of the rest of our debate. Next week, I'll come back with some thoughts and observations on the debate and some lessons that I think we can learn from it. This portion starts off with his cross-examination of me. So without further ado, here is Roger's cross-examination. All right, Dale, let's talk first about your invention of the fulfillment fallacy. Now, you've sort of switched terms here. When you talked about a fulfillment fallacy, you never actually gave examples for that. You switched to what you call double fulfillment. Those aren't the same thing, not even in your own terminology. Well, let me ask my question. So you have said that Psalm 110 is originally a royal psalm that could have referred to David. Is that what Jesus says in Mark 12? Well, let's look at Mark 12. I don't know. I don't have it right in front of me. Well, I could tell he's, you what He's it says. assuming that it's Jesus describing said, the David Messiah. David himself, 1237, calls him Lord. How right. then is he his son? Is Jesus saying that this first had reference to David and then is fulfilled in him as a kind of double fulfillment, or it simply refers to him and that's who David was talking about? Sorry, what's the question? Your argument, your position is that there are double fulfillments going on, and that's how you try to neutralize the explicit statement in Mark 1.3. You said that Psalm 110 was originally fulfilled in David, but has a double fulfillment. It's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus rules that out in Mark 12. No, he doesn't rule it out. David's the human author of this prophecy, which is being fulfilled. That's what he's presupposing. So was David referring to himself in Psalm 110? He doesn't say what the original context the was as distinct, but just look okay. at what scholars say, Mr. Rogers, about this psalm. I don't care what scholars say if Jesus in Mark 12 says David, yeah, you know, because it says David was talking about Jesus. David was not talking about himself. Okay, so what is your proof that Mark 1.3 is not talking about Jesus being the Lord, but rather the one through whom the Lord was acting? Mark explicitly says he's the Lord. You said he's the one through whom the Lord was acting. So what's your evidence? Yeah, my evidence is that the entire book distinguishes between God and Jesus. They're two different characters, and they're never said or assumed to be the same Lord or the same God. That's my evidence. Verse it's the well, whole book. You can't just keep saying the whole book says this if you can't even deal with one of the texts. In fact, one that comes at the very beginning of the book. The very beginning of the book calls him the Lord. So what proof do you have not to think of Jesus as the Lord, but as one through whom the Lord is acting? I have the, the context of mid-first century documents, sir, in which Jesus is commonly referred to as the one Lord in distinction from the one God, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 8, etc. You're appealing to the whole book then, ignoring the first three of chapter one. Context is king, man. Okay, well, here, listen to the king. In 228, the king says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, a divine institution. In 11.3, he claims to be the Lord who has ownership over the property of others. In 12, which we were just talking about, he claims to be David's Lord. Over and over again, he's called the Lord. That's the context of the book that you're appealing to, saying Jesus isn't the Lord. So again, what is your justification? Since you don't have the context of the book, what's your justification for saying Jesus is not the Lord, according to Mark? 1-3, the explicit statement. Is it something encoded there? Is it just some esoteric meaning that you read into it? 
Uh, how do you get out of it that he is not the Lord when Mark says he is the Lord? So I'm granting that he's the Lord in this new Christian sense of the term the Lord, like the Lord Messiah, the Lord Christ, the one who God has made Lord in Christ, not the Lord of the Old Testament who's the one God. This is his father. I think your question presupposes that there isn't that distinction. Who's Mark quoting in 1-3? Well, we know it's a mashup of three texts. He's quoting Isaiah. Yeah. He's quoting Isaiah in Mark 1-3. That's right. What does the meaning have there? When you read Isaiah 43, who is the Lord? It's Yahweh. Okay, so when Mark quotes it, he's giving it some new esoteric meaning? He's thinking it has another fulfillment. Just like I said, read what scholars say about the New Testament use of the Old Testament. If you've read what scholars say, then give me the argument that scholars gave you. You seem to be assuming like a fundamentalist kind of position, like the meaning in the New Testament has to be the same as the meaning in the Old Testament original context, and everybody knows that's false. You can say everybody knows that. Everybody, If you're going to appeal to the majority, Dale, and count noses, well, then you're the odd man out here. Unitarians are not the majority. Give me the arguments. If you've read the scholars and they've convinced you of this, give me the evidence that convinced you of this. Quit just name dropping. Part of the burden of my case in this debate is you don't need scholars to help you see that this author does not confuse together Jesus and God. They're two characters. Such as when he calls him the Lord in in Mark 1-3? Yeah, that's right. Mark 11-3? Yep, because the background is we know there's a new Christian use of the phrase hakurios, the Lord. And it's not God, it's for Jesus. Okay, Look you just in the lexicon. things, you don't have the evidence evidence for that. Now, uh, I thought you sort of shot yourself in the foot, <laughs> so I have to ask this here. You mentioned that you think what Mark is doing in this whole blasphemy thing, and I actually, I, I give you kudos here, Dale, for recognizing Mark 15, 29 as actually a reference to blasphemy, whereas most translations don't render it explicitly. Throughout Mark's gospel, you actually have this dueling blasphemies. In Mark 2, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. In Mark 3, he accuses them of blasphemy. In Mark 4, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, but then in Mark 15, Mark accuses them of blasphemy. But you mentioned that they were blaspheming Jesus, and you said, you know, here they are, they're blaspheming God. Not that Jesus is God, but that's where I think you shot yourself in the foot. So you recognize that Mark himself is presenting Jesus as the one who's ultimately being blasphemed. Ultimately, no. This is a synoptic theme that To receive the one sent is to receive the sender. To respect the one sent is to respect the sender. And to disrespect the one sent is to disrespect the sender. So they're blaspheming God by insulting God's special agent here, the Messiah. It's an easy reading. Do you think Son of God and Messiah are synonymous terms? No, I don't think they're synonymous, uh, but I think they're both understood in this book to be titles of the Messiah. They're understood as co-referential, but the meaning's not exactly the same. Right. So Son of God would be a greater title or just an equivalent? What exactly does it say about Jesus? The flavor of Son of God in this book, as many commenters point out, is royal, because uh, you have the kings being referred to in like Psalm 2 and other places as, you know, today I, I've made you my son. It goes along with the uh, Son of David and the, the uh, King of the Jews theme, which are also titles of the Messiah. You see it as equivalent to the title Christ. Um, it's not necessarily um, equivalent in meaning. Again, it's co-referential. They're both understood to be terms of Jesus. But for all I know, Mark believes in uh, the miraculous conception. And so like in Luke 1, he may be using Son of God to mean that like God, in a way, kind of substitutes for a human father in Jesus's case. Okay, so you, you said for all I know. So you don't get that from Mark, which is what we're debating. 
Uh, and if you want to appeal to the other Gospels, you're jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. The other Gospels <laughs> most emphatically teach that Christ is Son of God in an ultimate divine sense. John 5, 17 and 18 says Jesus was Son of God, thereby making himself out to be equal with God. John 10, 30, they wanted to stone him for blasphemy because he was claiming to be God by saying that he was the Son of God. So that's not going to help you. Stick to Mark unless you want to you know, get grilled by John and the other synoptics. But in Mark's Gospel, how does he define Son of God? I don't think he defines it. I think he uh, understands it uh, just like the Jewish priest understands it to be a title of God's Messiah, like the Son of Man, uh, Son of David, and so on. But there you go again, conflating the titles. The high priest does not conflate those two titles. He doesn't use a restrictive uh, a positive there. Uh, I mean, he uses a, a, uh, a form of a positive which understands Jesus not as just any old Christ, not Christ the Son of David, not Christ the Son of Aaron, but Christ the Son of God. It is that particular claim that the high priest charges as blasphemy. Why does the high priest think that's blasphemy? Is it blasphemy? Uh, you keep talking about what Jews believe. Was it blasphemy in the first century to claim to be the Christ? What the scholars say, Mr. Rogers, is that it's unclear what the notion of blasphemy was there. And uh, for all we can tell, just falsely claiming to be God's Christ or to be coming on the clouds with God, to be presumptuously taking upon divine prerogatives would count as blasphemy in their eyes. You keep saying scholars this, scholars that. I mean, if you had the goods, you could present the evidence. Now I'm going to play your game. No scholar says that. No scholar says that it was blasphemy to claim to be the Christ. We can even look at the New Testament to prove what I said the was case. that there they say it's unclear what, what the Jews are assuming about blasphemy. That's there, what I there said. There were numerous messianic pretenders in the first century mentioned in the New Testament. They're never accused of blasphemy, never put to death for blasphemy. Josephus, a first century witness, mentions numerous messianic pretenders. None of them were accused of blasphemy. Bar Chachba claimed to be a Messiah, never was said to uh, be committing blasphemy. Jesus was. Why is that? Like I said, I don't think it's clear how they define blasphemy. And notice you're just on a tear here with one detail, and you're ignoring what is in fact the main thesis of the book. I've tried to talk to you about the main thesis, and, and you obviously stumbled there, but— I've quoted you the main thesis. You told me something Richard Bauckham says. I didn't tell you anything Richard Bauckham says. But in any case, Mark 2, you said Mark doesn't tell us how they understand blasphemy, what blasphemy is. That's what right. What do they say blasphemy is in Mark 2? Uh, why don't you tell me? They said he was claiming to, to be God. Who, who does man think he is? Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? No, they're not saying he's claiming to be God. That's absurd. And the author doesn't say that. They're saying it was blasphemous to claim he can forgive sins. They're looking at him. They know he's not God. They're not saying he's claiming so to be think, God. So, so in their minds, what is blasphemy? Presumably in that case, you know, asserting this divine prerogative that you were not given, which is to forgive sins. Although they may have the foolish view that God cannot possibly delegate that, they may be assuming that, which we know is false from the New Testament. So in Mark 14, what do they mean by blasphemy? We have an established understanding now of what they understood by blasphemy. What is going on in Mark 14? No, it doesn't follow that they have to be assuming the same thing about blasphemy in chapter 14 and chapter 2. Why would somebody think that? Could just be a very vague notion of like disrespecting God. They're disrespecting God or Jesus is? It would be disrespecting God to, you know, to falsely claim to be God's Messiah or to falsely claim that you have authority on earth to forgive sins. Okay, so uh, I'll, let, I'll let that lie for right now. Uh, Mark chapter 4, 5, and 6, Jesus reenacted the events of the Exodus, as I pointed out in my opening presentation. What do you uh, think about that? Mark 4, 
Jesus rebukes and stills the wind and the waves, which are repeatedly ascribed to Yahweh in the Old Testament. That's what he did at creation and the Exodus. In Mark 5, he destroys a legion of demons, drowning them in the sea. In Mark 6, he feeds the multitude in the wilderness. All of these events are prototypical of what God did, and the Old Testament says God would do when he came in the future. Uh, How do you handle those texts? Yeah, I'm not sure uh, if those reflect this new Exodus idea or not, but the problem you have is that you're basically assuming it's impossible for God to give those powers to others. We know that's false because he does give the power to others to walk on water at least once. There's plenty of water miracles in the Old Testament, you know, making a brick float, dividing the Red Sea, and so on. This is not a clear coded signal that, hey guys, Jesus is God himself. In fact, we know he's not God himself. He's the son of God. He's been telling us for chapters now by the time we get to this point. You should drop the coded language because so far I think you're the only one that's been appealing to things that are coded here. But in Mark 4, 5, and 6, Jesus does things not only that other people had done in the past, uh, he does things that God distinctively did according to the Old Testament. He did it in the order God did it, and he did it uh, in a way that Mark records using the exact same language that was used for God. So, uh, You think you're smarter than the author. He knows what he's saying. You, you think that he somehow has just stupidly forgot to draw the conclusion that Jesus is God here. He knows I, what I've he's saying. Told you what, I mean, we've already talked. Okay. If you want to keep appealing to what the author allegedly says, but not deal with what he actually said, I mean, that's, that's not going to get us anywhere. In Mark 1.3, the author told you he's the Lord. You said, no, he's the one through whom the Lord is acting. There's only one person here who's agreeing with the narrator. Indeed so. L- look at Mark 6. How does Jesus respond to the disciples when they're afraid and think they see a ghost? He says, it's me, not a ghost, a he man, in other words. Me. Yes, he, he does. He says, ego emi. Right. He says, ego emi. Mm-hmm. Right? What does that mean, Dale? It means it's me. It's idiomatic Koine Greek for it's me or it is I or I'm the one. The conspiracy theorist will read a a divine statement here, but that's just not responsible. When the Trinity's podcast returns, my cross-examination of Anthony Rogers. Okay, Mr. Rogers, do you think that God could empower you to walk on water? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I don't have a problem with that. That's not, that's not been the basis of my argument. Good. Me too. So a, a mere man like Peter could be empowered. Yeah, not, not in Mark's gospel. That's not the point Mark is making. So do you think that God could empower you to rebuke the winds and the waves? When you were out, you know, on a fishing boat or no, something? No, I think that's a signature act of Yahweh according to the Old Testament. This is what God does in the Old Testament. It says, this proves that I am the Lord. And so if other people could do it, then it would mitigate the force of that as a uh, divine... Uh, a okay, token. so you think it's impossible for God to empower another person to do that? Yeah, I, I think there are things that are distinctive to God. It, it, you know, there are things that God can't do, right? We okay. say that God can do all things, but that's just shorthand. 
Uh, let me yes. give an answer. You don't God want me can't to lie you. and so on. No, God can't lie. Mm-hmm. God can't deny himself. God couldn't create another God, right? He couldn't create another being that's omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, and so forth. He alone is God. And so I think there are things that are distinctive to God that he couldn't yeah. communicate to a creature. Certain things are incommunicable. Right. You're claiming that an almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing being could not empower, say, Anthony Rogers to, you know, say, be still, and it would make the wind and the waves be still. You're saying that's something that all, the omnipotent God can't do? Uh, well, I think you're confusing things. I mean, he could tell me to speak, but it wouldn't be me actually causing the action. God would be the one. In Mark's gospel, that's not what's happening. You keep talking about Jesus being given authority. The one thing absent, totally absent from Mark's gospel is any statement of Jesus doing anything by someone else's authority. It doesn't say that anywhere in the book. Yes, he implies that it's by the authority of heaven, just like the ministry of John the Baptist. You could say it's implied, but you keep... Sometimes implications are just as clear as explicit statements, as you know. If you're making an impossibility claim about God, the way to show that something is impossible is to derive a contradiction from it. And I don't see how you derive a contradiction from this scenario. God tells Anthony Rogers, hey, in in a minute, I want you to say, be still, and it will thereby, your words will thereby stop the storm. I don't see any contradiction there. Is your claim based only on that only God is described as doing it in the Old Testament? Well, it's more than that. It's more than that. And and so if you're paying attention, you'll, you'll hear this as like the fifth time I've said it. Jesus did what God did. Those things that God said are definitional of who he is and prove who he is. Throughout the Exodus, he says, I'm doing this so that you might know that I am the Lord. So these are signature acts of God. Jesus does what God says are signature acts. He does them in the exact order that God did them. And he does them in a way that Mark records uh, the the very language he takes from uh, the Old Testament for Yahweh doing them and applies them to Jesus. So walking on water, is that a signature act of God? Well, I I would say that it is in this sense, in Mark's context. Jesus is the one walking on the water. When you appeal to Matthew, Matthew is doing something else. It's obvious that Peter does not have this power because Peter begins to sink. It's because Jesus is present that he makes the water like a, a, a floor, Uh, But it's very different than what's going on in Mark. Mark is not presenting Jesus as walking by somebody else's power, as is the case with Peter. Jesus is, is doing all of this by his own prerogatives. He's the one exercising these prerogatives. Jesus gives authority in Mark. He's not the one giving it. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Yes, every reader understands that he's been given authority on earth as Son of Man. Here's my next question. Do you think that I could empower you to literally forgive a monetary debt that someone owes me? Like, could I send you to the guy that owes me a hundred bucks? And could I say, Anthony, if he, uh, if he's sorry and, and humble, I authorize you to forgive the debt. Could I do that? Well, first of all, you're assuming that Jesus was authorized. No, just answer the question. I'm asking you a question about me and you. Could I authorize you you're to forgive my debt? Based on a false assumption. But yeah, you could do that, but that's different. God reserves the right to forgive sins against himself. Could I authorize you to forgive a wrong that somebody did against me? Yes, but you couldn't authorize me to forgive sins against somebody else. Okay, so then similarly, God could authorize Jesus to forgive sins, just like Jesus authorizes the apostles to forgive sins in John 20. I know it's not the same book. It's the same century. This is early Christianity. You can't cite the scribes as the authority for this idea that only God can forgive. Hold on. If you want to appeal to John, then I'll happily go to John. 
In John 20, 23, the disciples are given authority. Who gives them the authority to forgive sins? Now, I understand that in a ministerial and declarative sense, not a magisterial sense. I think they're declaring divine forgiveness on the basis of repentance and faith. But who is it that gives them this authority according to verse 22? It's Jesus who gives them this authority. Moreover, right. why does Jesus have Okay, this wait, this is my questioning time. Yeah, just, just like Jesus uh, authorizes them to cast out demons in this gospel. Jesus is called God by Thomas. That's why Jesus can authorize this is another the disciples debate. to exercise yep. this ministry. Mark doesn't do that. Let's stick with so if Mark. If you want to appeal to John, then you're appealing to somebody who, you know, is not your friend in this debate. Yeah, that's a nice little debating point. Obviously, I understand him to be referring to the one Lord and the one God. So do you agree that apart from Jesus, the only person who's described in the New Testament walking on water is Peter? Uh, wait, ask that question again? Aside from Jesus, do you agree that the only person in the New Testament who walks on water briefly is Peter? I, I agree there's one other person who attempts this and fails. Well, he does it for a little bit and then he fails, yeah. Okay, so does it follow from that that only Peter can walk on water? Uh, well, he, he failed again, but I mean, I, I'm not even sure what you think you're asking here. What I'm asking is because he's the only one described doing it, does it follow that he is the only person, again, other than Jesus, who could do that? I think just like Jehovah delivered an entire nation through the waters of the Red Sea, could safely deliver an entire nation over the top of the waters. But it's only Jehovah that can do that. And Mark is presenting Jesus as Jehovah. Total and complete misunderstanding of reading comprehension. Mr. Rogers, do you think that the one God is tripersonal? Yes, but in our debate, we're focused on Jesus. Yeah. So do you think that Jesus is tripersonal? No. Good. Okay, so there's a simultaneous difference between the one God and Jesus, namely that Jesus is not tripersonal and God is tripersonal? It depends how you're using the term. In both cases, you're using the terms differently. Which term? Uh, the term God, and I think you know that. You've, you've been around the block on this issue before. The question in our debate is whether Jesus is God, and by God, I mean that he bears the divine name, has divine essence and nature, has divine attributes, exercises divine prerogatives, all of which I've already proven on the basis of explicit Markan statements. Let me get clarification here. Are you saying not that Jesus just is the one God, like they're one and the same, but you're saying that Jesus is very closely related to the one God, like they share the same essence? No, well, you've, you've completed a number of confusions there. What I'm saying is that Jesus is uh, the fullness of deity in the flesh. So when you say Jesus is the one God, you just mean that Jesus is divine and not merely human. I mean that Jesus is, by essence, all that his Father is. Right, you don't mean that he's the Trinity, so you don't really mean that he's the one God. Uh, all three persons share that same divine essence. Uh, let me put it this way. If you want to be philosophical, although we're not, uh, this isn't a philosophical discussion, if you want to be philosophical, I believe that all three persons are numerically identical to the divine essence, but numerically distinct from each other as to their personhood. I don't conflate Okay, so you define the Trinity as implying an obvious uh, bunch of contradictions, because if they're identical to the same thing, they're identical to each other. That's just how identity works. No, I, I made it very clear. They're identical yep. as to their essence. They're distinct as to their personhood. Personal properties are distinct from uh, the divine essence. So you think one and the same God can be tripersonal and not? Yeah, Dale, welcome to Orthodox Christianity. 
the church has been confessing this for 20 centuries now. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Um, I happen to know something about this. Okay, so when you say Jesus is God, you don't mean that he just is the one God. You mean that he has a divine nature. I take it that's your meaning, following the creeds. I gave you my meaning. You don't have to, you know, swap words out. I, I That he's identical to the divine nature, the divine essence, and so is the Father? He is the Lord, Mark 1.3, Mark 2.28, Mark 5.19, Mark 11.3. He is the Lord. He just is the Lord, Mark and the Father not, just uh, is the Lord too, right? Mark does not present these two things as uh, problematic that you see as problematic. This isn't philosophical, by the way. This is just what the heck the actual thesis is that you're arguing for. A minute ago, you just said that Jesus just is the divine essence, and you also say that so are the other person. So the Father just is the divine essence. Okay, but things identical right. to the same thing are identical to one another. So it follows that Jesus just is the Father and can't differ from the Father in any way. That's just the transitivity of identity. You're trying to derive a contradiction from half of what I said and then inserting the other half that you just make up. The other half doesn't help any. Once you get contradictions, you get them. I said the persons are numerically identical as to their essence, numerically distinct as to their personhood. And so it's irrelevant for you to say things that are numerically identical to each other are just the same thing. They are one as to their essence, distinct as to their personhood. The son is not the father as to his personhood. Are you endorsing relative identity theory so that like Jesus and the father are the no, same being but different persons? I'm advocating orthodox Trinitarianism, which precedes all of your philosophical mumbo jumbo. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice if and, there was such a thing? Which isn't even in view in Mark's gospel. Mark simply identifies Jesus as the Lord. And that's what I'm defending in this debate. That doesn't require understanding him as the father. Although the Father, too, is Lord. Do you think that Mark assumes, like Paul, that Jesus is essentially immortal? Uh, yeah, he is uh, immortal as to his divine uh, nature, of course. Do you think Mark presents Jesus as only dying in his human nature and not his divine nature? Well, that's not the way I would put it. Uh, it was a divine person who became incarnate, so a divine person experienced death in and by means of that human nature— that was united in himself. Right. I know I know what orthodoxy says. I know what the right answers are supposed to be. But as far as what Mark says, where does Mark say or imply or assume that there is a divine nature that goes on living while there's a human nature that dies? I just see one character there who dies. Slow down. It, mm -hmm. If you're going to ask a question that Mark doesn't address every question that we all have, we have the rest of the New Testament for, to try and tackle a lot of these sorts of things. But Mark does make it clear that Jesus has power over life and death. Jesus raised the Syrophoenician woman's daughter in Mark chapter 7. Jesus— Yes, things like the apostles later do. Okay, I want to go on to a different question before I'm out like of time. Not just like the apostles did. The apostles did it by having authority conferred on them. Mark never mentions Jesus having it's authority It's by the power of God's Spirit in both cases. My next question is uh, Jesus's confessed lack of knowledge— when he says only the Father knows the day or the hour, do you take that at face value that literally Jesus does not know, like does not know in any way? Uh, no, that's not how I understand it. I think I know what you're talking about, right? It's common for, uh, it's common, I mean, first of all, I think it's funny because I think- So no, you don't understand it that way? Don't comment on what a goofball I am, just answer the question. You think he no, does know I, the day I or the hour? the term no there to be- you want me to answer? You got 30 seconds. Go. I take the word there to be used in a declarative sense, the same way Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you except Christ and him crucified. Okay. This yeah. was a well-known Jewish 
Yeah, this is Augustine's fallacious misreading. Yeah, I know this. Look, that makes Jesus a liar. If Jesus really does know it and he says he doesn't know it without qualification, then he's a liar because he knows that his hearers will understand him to be saying that he doesn't know it in any way. I know the Augustine reading that he just means that he's not declaring it. Yeah, right, I know the time, that. The time has expired. It's getting a little chippy, you guys. Um, I heard both of you guys throw a little, I will almost consider ad hominis at each other. So let's make sure that we're being cordial and respectful to each other so we can make sure we have a good conversation, okay? Hey, we're still having coffee together. We, we have I, to I be see. a little uppity in these things. <laughs> I, I don't take these things personal. I'm going to go to yeah. bed tonight without thinking anything about what Dale called me. I'm having an argument here with Mr. Rogers. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. What's the problem? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love we're it. not Good mad stuff, at each guys. other. When the Trinity's podcast returns, 20 minutes of free-flowing conversation and argument. Tell me what you think I was misunderstanding about your Augustinian take on that passage where he doesn't know the day or the hour. You're you're saying Augustinian, but I I really don't think you're familiar with the extent to which this was a patristic interpretation. Here's what I would say. First of all, the vast majority of Christians would probably say that this statement in Mark 13, 32 is resolved in terms of Christ's two natures, as both God and man. As God, he knows all things, just like as God, he's everywhere. As man, he is limited, has human attributes and characteristics, and so doesn't know everything, but grew in wisdom and so forth. While it's certainly true that Jesus had two natures and has the attributes and characteristics distinctive to those natures, and so can be spoken of from both vantage points, I don't think that's what's going on in Mark 13. Throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus is being presented as the bride of his people, the bridegroom. So Jesus is called the bridegroom in Mark 2. Throughout the book, it's mounting up to this idea that Jesus is taking a people for himself, just like Jehovah in the Old Testament, by the way, who's called the bridegroom of his people. But uh, Jesus is going to come back for his bride, and that's what the discussion is in Mark 13, Jesus returning as the Lord of the house, as the bridegroom of his people, uh, inaugurating a great marriage feast. In a first century context, when a Jewish son was going to go and get his bride, it was a father's prerogative to declare the day and the hour. Nobody else had the right to declare that day. That didn't mean that the son didn't know it. It just meant that it wasn't his prerogative to declare it. That's how I understand it in Mark 13, 32, in light of first century Jewish wedding customs, as well as the fact that that's what's being talked about there in the context. And that's a usage that's found throughout the New Testament, or it's found throughout Scripture, uh, especially the hiffle form of uh, the word no as used in the Old Testament. Uh, and, and I already quoted a New Testament passage uh, about this, right? In 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul said, I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. An Old Testament example would be Deuteronomy 4, 9, where God tells the people of Israel that they are to know them to your children, meaning God's wondrous act. Yeah, yeah, I, re- I recognize the uh, usage here, declaring but what, what he's saying here doesn't fit that at all. Um, first of all, neither the narrator nor anybody else says, oh, okay, well, I guess he just can't declare it. 
his point is that only the father knows it? it. His point is that the, only the father knows it, not that only the father declares it. That doesn't come into it. It's talking about a lack that's of what knowledge. You're claiming. Dale, that's what you're claiming. Dale, no one knows, a, a neither the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. That's not Dale claiming that he's claiming lack of knowledge there. You're saying not knowing means I, I'm not like empowered to declare it. I'm not authorized to declare it. It's not in view here that the, uh, that the Father is authorized to declare it. That's not in view. Okay, it so is, what is the, in view is the traditional Jewish assumption that God knows everything. That's what's in view. You're ignoring my explanation and then just reinserting your own interpretation of the word know there. It's fine if we disagree on the meaning of the word know, but you can't just pretend that I'm sharing, you know, I'm just... The issue is not that the Father has the privilege of declaring it. There's no hint of that in the text. That's, the, that's how the term no is functioning. That's my point. You can find Irenaeus and other early Christians who just say, yeah, you know, the Father's greater in knowledge. He says the Father's greater than I, and uh, specifically, he's greater in knowledge, and they're pointing precisely to this passage. They don't all know about this magical save where it just has to, knowing just has to do with declaring. First of all, I think you're misrepresenting Irenaeus, but the... Uh, the point that I made, there's a variety of interpretations among Christians. Some resolve it in terms of uh, Christ's tutors. That's not my resolution. Uh, I don't think that that's false as far as, you know, Christ having two natures and therefore two sets of attributes in, in accordance with those natures. But what I'm telling you is this fits the first century Jewish custom. It fits what's going on in the context. It fits not only Old Testament, but New Testament usage of the term no. The term no often is used in a declarative sense. The very fact that there's this widespread two natures explanation tells me that my understanding, which is very straightforward, is correct. That is why everybody has to labor to overcome the obvious meaning of it. So, yeah, I understand. I understand your suggestion. I don't find it plausible. I guess the listeners can judge. Yeah, they can judge because Jesus is presented in Mark's gospel as not only a man, the Christ, but also as the Lord, Mark 1, 3, Mark 2, 28, Mark 5, 19. But now let me ask you a question, since we, you know, we've gone back and forth a little bit on your question. In Mark chapter 2, we're told that Jesus knew the hearts of the Pharisees. He knew what they were reasoning in their hearts. Yeah. Uh, is this a signature act of Yahweh, according to the Bible, or is this one of those things that you say is not a signature act of, of Yahweh? It's just something anyone can do if God gives them the power. It can be both. I mean, it can be something that's distinctive of Yahweh. There's a few Old Testament passages that say, hey, I'm the one who knows the hearts of men. And yet it's clear that sometimes prophets get supernatural knowledge and knowing what's going on in the hearts of men. So my observation about that is just, look, if Mark wants to communicate that Jesus is God because he knows the hearts of men, he can have the narrator say it, he can have the good guy say it, he can have the bad guy say it, he can just say it by a clear implication. He just passes it all by. Or he could use the exact same language used for Jehovah that should have been familiar to any person in the first century, and that would have been an obvious tip-off, rather than, you know, somebody just dismissing. But It's not an obvious tip-off. Does it simply say that God knows the hearts? And, g- give me an example. Where are you looking at? The in, what, where's the exact the passage you're looking at? First Kings chapter 8, verse 39 says, You alone know the hearts of the sons of men. Okay. This is a signature act of God. Mm-hmm. This is something he claims to have the sole prerogative to do. Mark chapter 2 says Jesus knew the hearts of the religious leaders, what they were reasoning in their right. hearts. Yeah. In a context where they're accusing him of blasphemy for doing what only God can do. 
So here you have not only the Pharisees accusing Jesus of blasphemy for claiming a, a divine prerogative, an exclusive divine prerogative. You even have Mark saying that Jesus did something which the Old Testament says God alone can do. Do you really think that Mark is saying he's just a man, fellas? Well, I wouldn't call the Christ just a man, but uh, yeah, look, by distinguishing Jesus from God in all the ways I mentioned in my opening statement, that's uh, an inoculation to keep you from confusing Jesus with God, like say the modalistic monarchians or a oneness person would confuse them, and the differences tell you that they're not the same. You keep saying, if Jesus is called the Lord, he can't be the Lord because he's constantly distinguished from the Lord in the book, but I might just as well play the same game. Here is not truly the Lord, because Jesus is always called Lord in the book. And so all these other occasions must just mean that he's someone through whom the Lord is acting. You're not making any sense. There's not one meaning of Lord, so you just can't say, is this guy Lord or not? In Mark 1.3, it's an Old Testament text about the Lord, who is Yahweh, by your admission, being applied to Jesus. That's right. I'm not giving it a new meaning. You are. This is just a typical New Testament use of an Old Testament passage, just like Psalm 110.1, like we discussed already. Yeah, we discussed it, and you utterly failed to neutralize the significance of that testimony to Christ's deity. You appealed fallaciously to a double fulfillment, which you couldn't prove, which contradicted the way Jesus uses that text. No, it didn't contradict the way that Jesus uses that text. Look up what scholars say about Psalm 110 and about New Testament use of Old Testament passages. Forget your unnamed scholars who haven't given you any evidence that you can use in this debate, because you haven't used it. You just keep dropping their—well, their, I would say you're dropping their names, but you haven't mentioned a single name. It's better than these half-baked confusions of Jesus with God, which are refuted by all the differences between Jesus and God in this book. Jesus can't be God. He dies. What, what differences? So- he can't be God because he talks to God as somebody else. He worships God. He prays to God. He's not God. He talks to his Father. The Father Mm -hmm. talks to Jesus. Does that mean the Father isn't God? Jesus is called the Lord. The Father talks to Jesus, therefore not the Lord. The question anachronistically assumes that you can read this book using the idea of multiple persons in God, and that just didn't happen in the first century. It happened in the fourth century. It's not even in Irenaeus. It's not even in Origen. What I'm talking about is found throughout the ancient fathers. The only person who cited any fathers in this debate is me, even though I don't need to. The ancient fathers don't make this mistake of thinking that Jesus is God because of this prophecy. They don't. They have the Logos as a lesser divine being. They call him a second God. Justin calls him a second God. Origen says he's two in number and so on. I don't agree with your erroneous interpretations of the fathers and not really debating It's a good thing, because one of us knows more than the other about the Church Fathers, but continue. Church Fathers, happy to do that. Uh, One of us even quoted... Yeah, Anthony, it sounds like you're going in and out. Uh, Look like we might have lost your feed there. You're going in and out. Am I here? Yeah, Yeah, it looked like we lost you for for a minute. I think your audio's still there, but your video's frozen. Anthony, you back? You good? I'm back. We're talking about knowledge. I gave an interpretation of Mark 13.32 that you disagree with, uh, which is fine. Uh, we're probably not going to be able to resolve that between us today. Either way, there are two viable options as a Trinitarian that are open to me, either resolving it in terms of Christ's two nature or recognizing the first century historical context of Jewish weddings that the term no can be used in a declarative sense and is in the New Testament. But I pointed to Mark 2, where Jesus knows the hearts of men, which the Old Testament says is a signature act of Yahweh. God alone does this. This is an identifiable uh, prerogative of God. So what's some other 
throughout Mark where Jesus knows things. In fact, in Mark 3, it says that Jesus looked around at the people and was grieved at their hardness of heart. Before they do anything, Jesus looks at them and is grieved by their hardness of heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have anything in the Old Testament where any prophet, you've claimed that this is something that other people did? Uh, any example of somebody knowing the hearts in the Old Testament? Uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of that, how that phrase is used for a prophet. But look, we're all familiar with prophets, that they can have supernatural knowledge given to them. They can even speak uh, first person on behalf of God. They can pronounce judgment and so on. They can do all kinds of shocking things that are considered a prerogative of God. Not when the scriptures say that God alone, this is true, God alone. But the- To interpret that in a sense where it's it's like metaphysically impossible for God to share is just flat and overreading. It's not justified by that statement that God alone does that, um, especially given what we see in this book. Look, chapter two, this is the clearest statement, I think, about authority. He says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. When he calls himself the Son of Man, he's calling himself human, first of all, but also he's referring back to that one like a Son of Man in Daniel 7 who's distinguished from God, this one who in the future is going to get all this wonderful stuff given to him by God. So when he says that the Son of Man has authority on earth, he doesn't say that I as God have authority on earth, which would be a very easy thing to say, by the way. He's saying that as somebody else, I have obviously been given by God this authority. And that's how most interpreters read this book. Let's note a number of problems for your thesis there, Dale. Not only have we these two references in this very context to Jesus doing things that only God can do, forgiving sins and knowing the hearts of men, something admitted not only by the Pharisees, whom Mark is presenting as a foil for Christ's claim, but also by the Old Testament, 1 Kings 8, God alone can uh, know the hearts of men. But in this context, when Jesus says he has authority on earth to forgive sins, and he refers to himself as the Son of Man, you say this is with reference to Daniel 7, which I agree with, and you said in light of this future authority that he would be given. But here Jesus is already exercising this authority, and moreover, the very description of the Son of Man, the reason it's so puzzling to Daniel is precisely because this Son of Man is being described in patently language. The Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days, riding the Mm -hmm. clouds of heaven. Once again, this is a signature act of Yahweh. Yeah, it's not Yahweh. Yahweh is the Ancient of Days. This one is brought to Yahweh. It's patently two different ones. And to say that, oh, he's coming on the clouds, it's a a clear overreading. There's no question that it deals with two persons, but you're assuming that God himself is only unipersonal. There's no question that in the first century, there's no idea of God as multipersonal. And that is why you cannot import that fourth century idea into this first century book. And I don't buy your fringe views that somehow all the Jews thought this. You don't even see it in the New Testament, Anthony. You don't see in the New Testament the Jews treating God as multipersonal. He's the father. He's the king, etc. It's a singular personal pronoun guy. Well, in the first place, you can call it a fringe view, but between it is us, definitely the only a fringe who view. Actually, has a background and education in uh, Judaism is me. Besides that, I could easily quote the Targums referring to more than one divine person. I could quote Genesis 1.26, where they say the divine us is a reference of God, his word, and his Shekhanah, his spirit. Yes, I'm, I'm aware of these intermediary figures, yep. Not mm-hmm. intermediary, it's three persons being addressed by the Father, his word and his glory, his spirit. That's it, precisely the Trinitarian position. That's why Talmudic scholars like Daniel Boyarin 
or uh, Alan Siegel, a Second Temple Jewish scholar. Numerous other scholars say that first uh, century Second Temple Jews did in fact believe in more than one divine person. So if you want to talk about fringe scholarship, it must be the, the unnamed scholars you keep referring to. But- Pick up an introductory book on Old Testament theology. They'll say the, the Trinity is not in the Old Testament. End of sentence. Second Samuel 22.11 says, He appeared on the wings and... 18 says, 10 says, he spread, uh, he sped upon the wings of the wind. Over and over again, it speaks of God as the one who rides the cross, Isaiah 19.1. So the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is being portrayed in a way that the Testament portrays Yahweh. What's unique about this is a man. That's an absurd misunderstanding to think that the one like a son of man is Yahweh himself. This is why traditional interpreters would think it was the Messiah or even a personification of Israel. It's not God, who the one like a son of man. Interpreters? Jewish interpreters in this who, who, in these times. In some cases as a divine intermediary, in other cases as a messiah. Name uh, in other cases as in some um, cases as a divine intermediary? Yes. Mm-hmm. Like you see in Philo, for instance. Okay, so- Although he's utterly confused. His divine powers sometimes are intermediaries and sometimes they're divine attributes. So far, the only name we've had for a position ends up being closer to mine and not yours. You've given us one name for this, these beliefs, Philo, and his position's closer to mine than yours. The problem with your position is you think you're smarter than Mark, and you think that Mark is saying a bunch of things that Mark is not saying. That's the fundamental problem with your position. When the Trinity's podcast returns, our closing statements... In Mark's gospel, we are emphatically told that Jesus is the Lord. For this reason, we don't have to fish around for other explanations for why Jesus is able to say and do things that the Lord alone can do. Mark explicitly calls Jesus the Lord in Mark 1.3. He explicitly calls him the Lord in 2.28. He explicitly calls him the Lord in Mark 5.19 and 20. He explicitly calls him the Lord in Mark 11.3. He ascribes to Jesus divine attributes and prerogatives. Jesus forgives sins, which only God can do. Jesus knows the hearts of men, which only God does. Jesus not only is able to do things that are exclusive to God, according to the Old Testament, not simply some kind of philosophical speculation about what God could allow or not allow, but according to the Old Testament, what God alone can do, Jesus does. And in fact, in accordance with Old Testament anticipation about the new Exodus, that God would come again and do a greater work, Mark shows us Jesus reenacting the events of the Exodus. He shows Jesus delivering the disciples from the sea in Mark 4, destroying a legion of demons by drowning them in the water in Mark 5, then feeding a multitude of Israelites in the wilderness in Mark 6. Then he has Jesus repeating these acts all over again at the end of Mark 6, into Mark 7, into Mark 8. And after Jesus does this twice over, delivering them from the sea, destroying Satan's hosts, and feeding them in the wilderness, Jesus takes them up the mountain where he transfigures himself before the disciples, showing his essential heavenly glory. And then 
The father echoes the words that he spoke in Exodus 23 about the divine name-bearing messenger. In Exodus 23, the one the father calls Jehovah and tells Moses and the Israelites to listen to, Mark uses the exact same language that were spoken to Moses on the mountain. Listen to him. There's no question in light of the explicit statements as well as these narrative reenactments who Mark is identifying Jesus to be. Jesus is the Lord. Now, for Dale, none of these things can possibly mean any of that because Dale assumes Unitarianism. If Jesus is distinguished from the Father, then Jesus can't be the Lord, even though Mark explicitly says that. But the fact of the matter is that if we want to start assuming things, that I might just as well move in the other direction. Because Mark explicitly calls Jesus the Lord and shows him saying and doing what the Lord did do and alone can do, then the Father must not be that Lord. But that, of course, is absurd, and that's the absurd world of Unitarianism. Throughout this debate, I've demonstrated that these things are plain both on the surface as well as by obvious implication. Dale, on the other hand, has had to read things into the text. Instead of the text saying that Jesus is the Lord, the text means he's one through whom the Lord was acting. But that's not what Mark says. That's what Dale reads into it. Dale says that these interpretations come from much later. But the fact of the matter is, not only can they be observed in Mark's gospel itself, but the earliest fathers said the same things I'm saying. And I didn't have to simply say that fathers said this or that. I could actually quote them. But again, my, my appeal in this debate has been to Mark's gospel, not to other unnamed individuals, uh, certainly not uh, 17th century Unitarian, Unitarians. Dale complains uh, in, in numerous ways uh, that Jesus can't be God because he was tempted, even though the Old Testament says God was tempted in the wilderness, Exodus 17. Uh, he says all sorts of things. Jesus uh, died. Uh, all these things that supposedly mean he can't be God. But remember, this is how people in the narrative objected to Jesus. This is the carpenter's son, Mark 6. This man, we know his brothers and sisters. If he were truly who he claims to be, he'd come down from the cross. But don't you see, the whole point is that Jesus is the Lord who has come for this very purpose, to rescue his people by dying for them. The proper response of Dale is not to perpetuate the blasphemy of those who mocked Jesus and his divine claims when he was on the cross, but to repent and believe the gospel. All right, the All right proper Anthony, response. That's time right there. That's time. Okay. All right, Dale, you're up for your five-minute closing. Okay. The listeners should pay attention to the methodological differences on display in this debate. My position about Mark is based on what it clearly says and does not say, and on what sort of book it is. No interpretive voodoo is required. My opponent misreads the very thesis of this book, not even realizing that his interpretation requires two theses, a hidden thesis and a surface one. He just can't see the actual surface thesis, that Jesus is not God himself, but this human Messiah. And he imagines that being called Lord or doing things that God does in the Old Testament assumes that Jesus is the one God himself. He simply assumes that an all-powerful being can't authorize others to do such things. And so he derives a bunch of conclusions that our author never does. For me, Mark is a book which was intended to be understood even by 12-year-olds or adults with little to no education, and it succeeds brilliantly. My position about Jesus and God is clear and can be clearly stated in biblical language. The one true God of the New Testament is the Father alone, and so not anyone else. 
The man Jesus is his Messiah, a uniquely important agent who has now been raised and exalted to be the one Lord under the one God. In contrast, my opponent is wedded to the whole traditional Catholic morass about multiple hypostases sharing one usia, and Christ is somehow composite of divine nature plus a human nature, whatever those are. That way lies a pit of unfruitful and unending speculations which do nothing to clarify New Testament teaching. For details, see my published work on the many Trinity theories and my debate book with Chris Date or my lecture Clarifying Catholic Christologies. Now, unfortunately, he's stood up for an absurd interpretation of Mark's views about God and Jesus. He says that here Jesus just is God and the Father just is God, and yet Jesus is not the Father. That's just nonsense. Things that are identical to the same thing are identical to one another. That's just basic logic. My debate opponent does not care about seeming incoherence. That's for heretics to worry about. But in ceasing to care about seeming incoherence, he devalues both truth and our God-given critical thinking abilities by which we separate the false from the true. He hunkers down with a few misread texts, rickety arguments, and fringe scholarship, and poses as a noble defender of the faith, declining to answer simple questions of clarification about how God and Jesus are supposed to be related and how they could possibly differ, given that they're both the same God. But you, my friends, should run towards the hard questions, such as, why, if Mark thinks Jesus is God, does he never get around to saying that? Imagine that the gospel according to Mark was the only Christian scripture. If this were so, would Christians, based on this one scripture, have come up with the idea that Jesus is God? Would they have reasoned like Mr. Rogers today, arguing that, you know, he does things that God does, and he's called Lord, so he must be God? It's hard to imagine that happening. And that is because Mark only presents him to be God's Christ, not God. He never says or implies or assumes that Jesus is divine the way the one God is divine. This idea is no more in this first century book than the idea of the internet is in the writings of Thomas Jefferson. Worse, on the face of it, no passage, even at first glance, sounds like it implies that Jesus is the one true God or is fully divine. There's nothing in the book to worry Socinus, William Ellery Channing, or Sir Anthony Buzzard. Part of what's going on, I think, is that the very Catholic Protestants, like my opponent, find it jarring that, in their view, Paul and John teach that Jesus is God, while on the face of it, the synoptics don't. One would like to think that early Christians, a very small movement, had their story straight and are not disagreeing about who God and Jesus are. So then, these overly Catholic Protestants simply squeeze the synoptic Gospels with all their might, hoping to produce just a drop of deity of Christ from them. But it doesn't work. It's better you should see how the New Testament authors really are consistent about God and Jesus by carefully re-examining what Paul and John and Peter and the authors of Hebrews and Revelation actually say. It turns out that biblical Unitarian Christians like me love these books as much as we love Mark. Further Reformation is the way forward. It's better to do that than to cling to the 16th century Reformation as if it went far enough. New Testament theology doesn't need clarifications from ecumenical councils. If you're a Christian who has realized that mainstream Protestantism is far too Catholic in its theology and Christology, I encourage you to check out UnitarianChristianAlliance.org, specifically our resources and our growing community. This is a real and dynamic 21st century Reformation in which believers go back to the apostolic sources, and by God's grace, the distorting creedal scales are falling from our eyes. Thank you. When the Trinity's Podcast returns, Q&A time.
Anthony, how can you say Yeshua is God when he said the father is alone, moaning in Greek? True God and his own God, he goes to. Sounds like a conflation of several passages. This is a Unitarian favorite. It's not found in Mark's gospel. It's found in John 17, 3. In John 17, 3, Jesus, referring to the Father, says, uh, This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Uh, Unitarians fallaciously assume that the word alone, manon there, is modifying uh, the word Father, and so means the Father alone is the true God. But the word alone modifies the word true, which further modifies the word God. In other words, Jesus is saying the Father is the only true God, something that every Christian Trinitarian believes. He's not saying that the Father alone is the only true God. That is not what's going on there in the Greek grammar. Yeah, well, every translator seems to disagree with Mr. Rogers there. Um, That seems to be precisely what it's saying. This is why Trinitarians have wondered about this. Why doesn't he say the Father and Son are the one true God, or Father, Son, and the Spirit are the one true God? That's more what a Trinitarian would expect in the passage. Anthony, this is for you again. You say only God can do things. Yeshua claims what he does is the Father in him and does his works. How, How do you explain? We are debating the Gospel of Mark. Okay. And I've tried as much as I can to uh, stay in the gospel of Mark and not appeal to things outside of that. Dale has gone outside of it quite a bit. In Mark's gospel, he never says anything of the sort. Where he does say that sort of thing is in the gospel of John. But that's not the gospel you want to t- turn to in order to try and uh, trump what Mark is teaching. In John's gospel, Jesus is explicitly identified as I theos ain halagos, John 1.1. 1, 1. And God was the word, John 1.18. God, the one and only who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Repeatedly, Jesus is called God in the Gospel of John. And so when it talks about the Father being in him, that's exactly what I would expect as a Trinitarian. All three persons of the Trinity are always involved in and with the other persons of the Trinity. So that doesn't discount my position. It rather is part and parcel of it. So if we go to Mark's Gospel, though, you don't find this sort of discussion. That's found in John, where Jesus is emphatically called God. Just like when you go to Mark, he's emphatically called Lord. Yeah, the debate's about Mark, not John. And the important thing, I think, to see is that this author does not draw the conclusions that my debate opponent draws. And to cite the uh, scribes in chapter 2 is is just wrong. They're wrong that he's blasphemed, and they're wrong that only God can forgive sins. Um, This clearly is a divine prerogative that can be given to another. And that's generally Mark's view about what is going on here. If Mr. Rogers was right, the author could have just dropped a a drumbeat through the book, and therefore Jesus is God, and therefore he's the Almighty, and therefore he's the one true God, and things like this. Bizarrely, given his interpretation, all he does is call Jesus the Lord. But it's just a commonplace that you can look up in your lexicon for New Testament Greek that one usage of Lord is for God when it's a substitute for the divine name, and another usage is it's for the one Messiah. It's a title of Christ, basically. So, yeah, to to say that Jesus is called Lord, therefore, obviously, he's God here, is just to ignore that, basically. And to claim that these things can't be authorized is very implausible. In Mark 6, why is Jesus water walking unparalleled in Roman myth? Water running was due to superhuman speed, but Jesus supersedes the gods, and the Roman reader is expected to be utterly astounded. What are your thoughts, Dale? I mean, I think the reader is supposed to be astounded. That's right. I think Mark is basically working with Jewish ideas about God and humans, not with Roman ones. When he's getting near and scares them and they think it's a ghost, he says, hey guys, it's me. It's really just this man. 
It's not a ghost. It's not a God. It's the human Messiah. So I don't think Mark is in danger of misleading people into thinking that Jesus is a God in the way he presents that scene. Neither a God, much less the one true God. So I would agree that Mark's background here is primarily the Old Testament, and that's problematic for Dale because throughout the, the text, Jesus is saying and doing what God did in the Old Testament, a signature act of God. It even says that when they thought they saw a ghost, Jesus says, intended to pass by them, which is an Old Testament catchphrase for what God did uh, with Moses. He passed by him and declared his name to them. This is what Jesus does in Mark 6. He intends to pass by them, but then says to them, I am, ego emi in the Greek. Very clearly, Jesus is identifying himself as God in this text. That's why they were amazed. The Old Testament image of God asleep functioned as a symbol of the absoluteness of his sovereignty and sleeps undisturbed over chaos waters. In Mark 4, why was this used for Jesus asleep on the chaos waters? Thanks for you, Dale. The thing about God's power over the water, right? In ancient times, the seas were particularly scary and dangerous. People weren't sure what was really under them. You know, it says uh, in Psalm 89, famously, you rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. So God is provident even over this deep, scary, dark thing that, you know, swallows up humans whenever they mess up. Um, but in the rest of the psalm, you know, he's talking about how he's going to bless his king, traditionally believed to be David. And he says about that king, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. Right? So the authority over the waters is being given to God's anointed one. This is why, just because it's normally a, a divine prerogative, this is just a yet another case of something you would normally think was reserved for God alone. Oh, but actually God can share it. This is just another example of this. And again, go read the passage and try to find the part where the narrator, a good character, a bad character, anybody concludes, aha, that's God himself. They don't conclude it because it doesn't follow. It just follows that this is a miracle that's been done. Yeah, his appeal to Psalm 89 is erroneous. And when it says that he'll set his hand on the sea, it's refer and, and, and of course the ends of the earth, it's referring to his, uh, you know, uh, uh, coming to have dominion over all the world, meaning the people on it. But the idea of God sleeping in the Old Testament and, and awakening to uh, still the winds and the waves, that is ascribed to Yahweh. Isaiah 51, 9 through 11 says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, as in the days of old, was it not you who dried up the sea? So repeatedly, God is, is called upon to awaken and subdue the sea. That's what happens in Mark chapter 4, uh, where Jesus is asleep on the boat and they awaken him to come and, and still the sea. So it, it's very clearly an Old Testament notion ascribed to Yahweh that's here being ascribed to Jesus. And by the way, in Job 9, it explicitly says that God alone tramples down the waves of the sea, and the Septuagint says he walks upon the sea as upon a floor. Later in the same context, Job says, if he were to pass by me, I would not recognize him. The very thing that's happening in Mark chapter 6, when the disciples don't recognize him but think they see a ghost, when Jesus intends to pass by him. Okay, these things all have Old Testament counterparts. They are identifying Jesus as the Lord, as the I am, what Jesus explicitly says in the text. Roman medical text spoke of men as non-porous hard bodies. 
In Mark 5, why did Jesus contradict this by showing his male body was porous and soft, curing the woman in order to show his hidden divinity? That's for you, Dale. I have no idea. <laughs> Anthony? If he wants to take it, go for it. Which is- yeah, I'm, I'm not necessarily informed about this particular question, though it's intriguing. Uh, my mind is racing a little bit here. But one thing I would say about these miracles, uh, throughout the Old Testament, according to the law, if you touch an unclean person, you're rendered unclean. Uh, the law itself couldn't affect uh, cleansing. Only the Holy One could make what was unclean holy. And Jesus, throughout Mark's gospel, is presented as that Holy One. He touches lepers without becoming clean, and his touch cleanses them. It doesn't just speak of him healing them. It speaks of his, him actually touching them. It's deliberate. Uh, the woman who has the menstrual discharge for many years uh, touches him, and yet she's cleansed rather than Jesus becoming unclean. Uh, Jesus touches the dead body of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, even though touching a corpse renders one unclean. So here's Jesus repeatedly trumping the Torah, just like he declares all foods clean in Mark chapter 7. Just like Jesus walks among the tombs when he delivers the Gerasene demoniac from a demon without becoming unclean and shows his power over Satan's legions. Repeatedly, Jesus is being presented in all of this, not only as the Holy One, but as the strong man predicted in the Old Testament. Isaiah 40 uh, and 42 all repeatedly speak of God as the strong one. And there it's talking about his coming new Exodus work to rout the evil one and deliver mankind from Satan's oppression. So Jesus is being presented as Yahweh in so many different ways in Mark's gospel that, uh, you know, it, it takes, and, you know, I'm not just trying to be mean here, but it, it does take a special kind of blindness to miss it. Marlon, all I would say about this passage is that when the woman touches him and he doesn't know who touched him, this once again shows that he's not the essentially omniscient God. And you can't, you know, suppose here that uh, he's saying he doesn't have the authority to declare who touched him. He doesn't know. He looks around to see who does it. God wouldn't need to do that. Mark 5, the power goes through Jesus' body to cure. I think that's what he's talking about as far as the horse nature of the of the body, I guess. Uh, that's mm. what he's referring to. So, all right. Thank you, Robert, for that explanation. Is Jesus divine now, and will we be divine due to uh, possessing divine attributes such as eternal life and having a divine nature? Does divine equal God? Um, you know, in early Christianity, they talk about human salvation as divinization or being made gods and so on. Of course, they don't mean being made divine in the way that the one true God is divine. They seem to mean something like being made immortal and being you know, entirely freed from sin and things like this. So you could say that Jesus is in a divine position or has a kind of divine status now. I believe that when he's exalted and given a new job, he had to be given capabilities appropriate to that new job, which would include a big upgrade in power and knowledge versus what he had in his earthly ministry. What I reject from the patristics is this idea that to divinize us, Jesus has to be divine divine in what sense, like in the way one God is divine. There's no idea anywhere in the New Testament, it's never implied, never presupposed, never stated that to atone or to reconcile us to God, Jesus has to be divine in order to accomplish that. A major problem here for Dale in light of, you know, saying there's maybe some sense in which he could be divine afterwards when he's given all these things. The problem is Jesus has and exercises all of these prerogatives prior to his resurrection, the authority to forgive sins, the authority to read the hearts of men. I mean, and it doesn't even speak of that as authority. It's just a, a power that he has. 
Moreover, I mean, you even see Jesus as omniscient in the New Testament. Contrary to Dale, Mark 5 is not an example of Jesus being ignorant of who touched him. In Mark 5, the whole point of the story is that Jesus knew that somebody touched him. It wasn't just that somebody touched him and he didn't know who it was. The Greek, it's it's obscured in uh, our translations, but the Greek literally says that he turned to see, it's an infinitive of purpose, the woman who had touched him specifically. So Jesus knew immediately in his spirit, it says, that he was touched and he turned for the purpose of seeing the woman who had touched him. So he's not being presented as ignorant there, but as all-knowing, just like God is all-knowing, and that long before the resurrection, long before this quasi-divinization that Dale believes in. What he gets in Revelation 5 is real. It's a real upgrade of position, just like Daniel 7. And the text you were just talking about and mischaracterized, verse 32, says, he looked all around to see who had done it. And then the woman comes up and fesses up. Yeah, and what you're missing is to see is an infinitive of purpose. And it doesn't just say he looked, it's not saying he looked around to find out who it was. It says he looked around to That's exactly see what for it the says. purpose of seeing the woman who touched him. So he knew that it was the woman, not just You've got a theory and you're just fighting the, the translators now. All right, guys. You're fighting the right. Greek text. There's only one person who knows Greek here, Dale, and it's me, not you. You said how God saved Israel through the water full well, knowing he did this thing through a man. Why can't the same be true of the Messiah in Acts chapter 2, verse 22? The problem you have in trying to look at it this way is it, it's, it's only giving one half of the equation. I certainly grant that God was active in the Old Testament, and so were men. What happens in the New Testament, though, is what's ascribed to those men in the Old Testament is ascribed to Jesus, and what was ascribed to God in the Old Testament is ascribed to Jesus. So Jesus ends up being the embodiment, both of those human types, as well as the divine Lord in all of these encounters. And so, for example, while Moses was involved in uh, delivering the people through the sea, it's God who rebukes the sea, according to the Old Testament text. It's Jesus who rebukes the sea, according to the New Testament text. So Jesus fulfills the role not only of the human types of the Old Testament, but the divine Lord of the Old Testament. So Jesus is, contra Dale's 17th century Socinianism, being presented as both God and man in the New Testament, in Mark specifically. What a lot of Trinitarians will tell you is that in the New Testament, Jesus actually does miracles, not by exercising his divine nature or exercising his divine powers, but rather through the power of God's Spirit that's given to him. And this is what we see in places like Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. John, he says, God gives the Spirit without measure to the Messiah. There's this background assumption that, yeah, God is empowering all of this, and uh, it's understood to be kind of a divine, you know, like it argues in John, it's it's a kind of divine endorsement that he really is who he says he is, which is God's Christ. This idea that Jesus does miracles, and this shows that he has divine powers, is nowhere to be found in the book. There's not a shred of it anywhere. The author could have told you 74 different times, and he just passes it all by. That's because he doesn't think that. Mark 1, 3. Mark 2, 28. All right, guys. Mark 5, 19. <laughs> Where he doesn't right, say a, that. Here's right. another question. Here's another question for Dell. How do you explain Jesus claiming to be the root and offspring of David if he's merely a human creature? The root and the offspring of David. I mean, I take it that's a way of saying that he's from the line of David, which is, a, you know, kind of a pan-New Testament view about him. I guess the question maybe presupposes that uh, he's supposed to be like the creator of David or something like that, but I don't think that's the meaning of the phrase. 
Yeah. So I think it's interesting. It seemed like this is the first time Dale sort of thought about that. And he was sort of naturally inclined to think, oh, is this saying that Jesus is the origin of David as well as his offspring? And that's exactly right. That's how I would take that. And it's similar to what's going on in Mark 12, to bring it back to the book, where Jesus asks, how could he be David's son if he's David's Lord? In other words, Jesus is both the root of David and David's offspring. This is the reason why Jesus is not only presented as uh, having the spirit uh, as a man and doing things as a man, which we would expect of the Messiah, but also doing things that only the Lord can do. You know, again, Dale keeps appealing to things outside of Mark's gospel to give us an impression of what he thinks Mark is telling us. He appeals to Luke, he appeals to John. But if we turn to those other gospels and incorporate into our understanding of Jesus what they additionally tell us, then we also have to take into account the rest of what they tell us. Jesus is not simply presented as a human being who has the spirit, according to John. He's a divine person come in the flesh, anointed as a human being to do those things that were necessary for man's salvation. I think Mark is doing that in his own distinctive way, and he presents Jesus repeatedly as the Lord, explicitly. It's not encoded. It's not obscure. He doesn't say through the Lord. He says he is the Lord, and he's doing what the Lord did, and he does it in exactly the way the Lord did it, and in exactly the same order, using the exact and precise terminology used for God in the Old Testament. Anthony, Mark 12, 32. How many persons is in this verse? One, two, or three, or more, asking for a friend? Yeah, so the, the great thing about uh, Mark 12, just to give something of the context here, in Mark 12, you have Jesus being tested. There's a series of tests, right? The Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. And in each case, Jesus thoroughly refutes them, and then they shut their mouths, right? So at this point in the, in the discussion, he's already silenced uh, two other groups. And now the scribe comes forward and asks the question, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, and then Jesus, it's, we're told, gives a, uh, a correct answer, and they no longer dare to ask him any questions. But then it's Jesus' turn, and Jesus now asks them the question, based on Psalm 110, who is the Messiah? Whose son is he? And he quotes Psalm 110.1, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so what's going on in the context is that the Shema most certainly does say that the Lord is one. But that's not all the Old Testament teaches us. That's not exclusive of another person who is properly and truly identified as Lord. In Psalm 110, there are two persons who are called Lord. So the one Lord who is to be worshipped and served by Israel encompasses this other person who is also called Lord. That's what's going on there. That's why at the end of that conversation, it says that Jesus had thoroughly silenced them and they no longer dared to ask him any questions. <laughs> I mean, the misreading of Psalm 110 is brutal. Only one of those two who are called Lord there is the one God, and it's the one who's addressing, quote, my Lord, and kind of inviting him up to his throne and giving him all this power and so on. And so that's how all the New Testament writers take it. See Acts 2, for instance. And by the way, uh, when I appeal to other New Testament books, it's for first century context. The answer to why David calls him Lord is because he's going to be exalted to be the one Lord, like it says, God has made him both Lord and Christ. The scribes do not know this about the Messiah. They think he's a descendant of David, but they don't really realize uh, how high and mighty his destiny is. That's how he stumps them. But to think that both of these ones called Lord in Psalm 110 are supposed to be God is just a brutal misreading, and this angel of the Lord stuff doesn't help with that. In Mark 1, 24, the demons refer to Jesus as the Holy One of God. Is this a reference to the deity of Christ? 
Uh, no, it's not. It's it's a reference to him being God's holy one, God's chosen one for a special purpose, which is to say God's Christ or his Messiah, son of David, etc. I've already commented on this to some extent. The Now, there's no question that Jesus is distinguished from the Father there. He's the Holy One of God. From uh, God. But that mm-hmm. doesn't preclude that Jesus is himself God and Lord, as Mark explicitly teaches. Mark's not a Unitarian, uh, and he fits quite comfortably in his first century Jewish context where they didn't think God was monopersonal. Throughout the Old Testament, God is declared to be the Holy One. It's God's feet that touch the ground and cause it to be holy, Exodus 3, Joshua 5. God is the one whose touch makes things holy. Throughout, Jesus goes and routes, uh, cleanses the land of the unclean spirits. He cleanses the leper. He cleanses the, the dead body of the Syrophoenician woman, of the woman in Mark 5 who has the issue of blood. Jesus is the one who's described as the Holy One throughout Mark, and in that way, he is being identified as the Lord of the Old Testament. And by the way, you know, speaking of Jesus as Lord, I have not at all, though Dale has, butchered Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The one seated at his right hand is called Adonai in Psalm 110.5, an exclusive divine title. So the Lord at Yahweh's right hand is Adonai, a divine person. That's why he stumped the Brutal Jews. misreading. He Look at what the commenters say about verse 5. Look at what the Hebrew text says, Dale. Total Forget misunderstanding. The and, and the commentators aren't on your side here. They are on my side. How about right, the Hebrew text? Uh, that's what they're commenting on. Real quick, <laughs> two more questions, two more super chats, and we're going to shut it down. Um, so real quick, if you guys can champ through these, these last two questions. This is for you, Dr. Tuggy. You say that the, because Jesus asked who touched him in, a, in Mark, uh, Mark, through Luke, Mark and Luke, he can't be God. God asked Adam and his wife where they were hiding in Genesis 3. So God isn't omniscient in Eden either. Uh, if you're going to take that story literally, you're probably going to think that he's just uh, saying that for their benefit, basically. Where are you guys? Unless you think uh, that in a theophany, he can temporarily limit his omniscience or something like that. But what I find plausible is that God, as a perfect being, is not only all-knowing, there's no truth that could be hidden from him, even in principle, he's essentially all-knowing. And so a sure way to communicate that somebody is not God in this Jewish context is to portray them as not knowing something. And that's what I think Mark has done. If you think Mark presents him as divine in some way, uh, okay, but then that way doesn't require all that the highest sort of divinity requires, because it doesn't require essential omniscience. Yeah, so I've already argued on the basis of the Greek text itself, the fact that it uses the infinitive to see and specifies that it was the woman he turned to see, shows that Jesus was not saying he's ignorant, but in fact demonstrating that he's omniscient. That's why the disciples are puzzled in the context. How are you asking who touched you? You see the crowd pressing in on you. So they don't understand why he knows that, in fact, he was touched. And, And the text explicitly says he was immediately aware in his spirit that somebody touched him. So the text isn't communicating his ignorance, but his knowledge, his prescience, divine knowledge. Quit interrupting me, Dale. (laughs) That's my job. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, Dale doesn't help himself by saying, you know, in the Old Testament, God was just being rhetorical for the benefit of Adam and Eve, you know, saying, you know, where are you to to elicit their response? It, It does the very same thing in Mark 5. Jesus elicits a response from the disciples, which draws attention to the fact that he knows something they don't think he should know. So uh, I I think he's just basically made my point for me. He looked all around to see who had done it. Verse 32. He didn't look around in order to find out, Dale. He looked around to see the woman who had touched him. So he knew who touched him, according to the Greek. 
Is there a correlation between Psalms 110.1 and Hebrews 1 and a reference to Jesus as Lord? Well, of course. I mean, Psalm 110 is quoted numerous times in the New Testament, among them Mark 12, what we've talked about, as well as Hebrews 1. Throughout Hebrews 1, the author cites a litany of Old Testament texts establishing the full deity of the coming Messiah. He's explicitly called God in verse 8, Hebrews 1.8, and he's called Lord in verse 110, the Lord who made heaven and earth. He's even identified as immutable there, unchanging, unlike the rest of the world in Psalm or in Hebrews 1.10. And so after that, he cites Psalm 110 in the context of this litany of Old Testament deity text applied to Jesus. It's the same context in which Jesus is said to be the effulgence of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and also says that he uh, is the one through whom God created the world and is the one uh, by whose word powerful word, all things are being upheld. So that's all found in Hebrews chapter 1, and that just supports my interpretation of Mark uh, 12 uh, and its citation of Psalm 110, and again, thoroughly debunks uh, Dale's claims. Wouldn't that be nice? Hebrews 1 uh, is thoroughly throughout distinguishing Jesus from God. It would be pointless to argue that the Son has now been made superior to the angels if he has the divine essence or is the one God. He is called God, quoting Psalm 45, but then he's described as having a God. So that shows you that like the term Lord is ambiguous, the term God is ambiguous. Lord can mean a title of the one God or a substitute for the divine name, and it can also be applied to others, such as Jesus in the whole New Testament. There's something interesting going on with uh, verse 10 and 11 and 12 when he's quoting a psalm, which clearly was originally about God. And I think, based on research, that it's best to take this as a, a reapplication like the ones that I described. Anthony Buzzard has a good appendix in his book called Jesus is Not a Trinitarian, where he's quoting some recent biblical scholarship about this very subject and about just quite what the author of Hebrews 1 is doing with this Old Testament quotation, what he means by it. And of course, he doesn't mean that Jesus is the one God himself. He distinguishes Jesus from the one God himself through the whole book. Even if you think that verse 2 is saying that God created all things through Jesus, well, that's not something that you'd say about God, that someone else created through him. He's supposed to be the ultimate source of God's creation. So you would get pre-existence that way. You wouldn't get Jesus being the one God, if that's what that statement means. I don't think it does, but that's another conversation. All right. All things are through the Father, Romans eleven thirty six. Yes. All right, guys. Father, not God. I agree with that text. I appreciate you both, man. I'm going to get this thing closed out. Uh, you guys take care and God bless. All right. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, Thank you, Marlon. Marlon. Thank you, Dale. All right. God bless. Next week, some of my thoughts about this debate. In the meantime, there's a short video that you might want to check out. It's on YouTube. It's entitled, How Anthony Rogers Interprets Scripture as Self-Contradictory. In that short video, I represent a portion of my questioning of him from this debate, but I also put up on the screen what I was thinking. It looks like the things that he's saying just lead to five contradictions, and these just don't concern him for some reason. He even suggests that, hey, this is just orthodoxy, man. Anyway, you can check that out. I'll put a link for that video on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Also there, you can find a link to our thinking music today, which has been the track Subaquionic by Little Glass Men.
for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.